Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. The following podcast includes barnyard language and themes like being lost in the wilderness, extramarital affairs, death of a spouse, death of babies, abortion, death of a person because they refuse to have an abortion, and toxic masculinity. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today, we will be discussing the 2011 novel and the 2017 movie adaptation of The Mountain Between Us by Charles Martin. But first, a few quick notes. First off, thank you to our patrons who support this show by their $1 a month donation. Those singles add up and help us keep doing this. As a thank you, we have released a special supplemental episode for you all that has related to our recent conversation about Wild, that Cheryl Strayed book and Reese Witherspoon movie. The supplemental episode has two interviews with actual PCT hikers, some fun trivia, and even a Gilmore Girls clip. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening and thinking, gee, I want to hear that episode and all that other random delightful supplemental episodes, feel free to go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast and sign up. Next, we want to thank everyone who's been rating and reviewing us and sharing us with your friends on your social media platforms, taking part in our listener polls, etc. You can find us all on Facebook at Pages and Popcorn Podcast, so please check it out. Lastly, we want to remind you about our website, where we have show notes and sources and info about upcoming episodes. It's totally worth a click. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Kalia? 
What on earth made you pick this book and movie? Well, Jennifer, you know how they say don't judge a book by its cover? Sometimes I buy books based on the cover. And if I see a book that says now animation motion picture, and I think, oh, so that's kind of fun. And then I see that it stars fucking Kate Winslet and Idris Elba. Uh, I get real excited and I'm like, I totally am going to watch this movie. So I should probably read this book. And and here's the thing. Uh, <laughs> I am a little bit of a deconstructionist in, in, in some ways. I tend to not overly or sometimes at all uh, look into an author before reading a book. Sometimes, yes, like Stephanie Meyer is an author's name I recognize and I know, oh, she wrote Twilight. So she's that kind of writer, um, you know. Now I know Ernest Klein. Ooh, you know, I've got a visceral reaction to some of these people. But just a random dude name, a random white dude name that like pushes no buttons and doesn't like stick in my memory at all. I didn't look this guy up or anything like that. So I was just like going into the book knowing, A, that it was about people who crashed and may or may not make it out. And it was going to be made into a movie. That's literally all I knew. And so let me do my recap now. The Mountain Between Us is a romance disaster novel written by American author Charles Martin. The story focuses on Dr. Ben Payne and writer Ashley Knox as they get stuck on high, mutinous wilderness after a plane crash. Okay, here we go. I'm going to apologize in advance for the cursing. We start off with Ben, our main character. He is a runner, an orthopedic surgeon, and rather annoying. More on that later. He's in the Salt Lake Airport trying to catch a plane ride home after a medical conference. He notices, in a totally weird and creepy way, a fellow passenger. Turns out that she's Ashley, a writer who is set to get married in just two days. He can tell that she's an athlete by the way that she sits, and that she's not like other girls, and it's so trope-heavy by page 10 that I almost want to quit. But anyway, they bond when she overhears him doing patient transcriptions, because apparently hip is not a thing. And when Ben is incapable of answering any questions without a long diatribe about his life. Seriously. Anyway, the flights all get canceled because of a big-ass snowstorm, but Dr. Ben decides that chartering a personal plane makes more sense than rescheduling a surgery, and once Grover, the pilot, has accepted his pitch, he offers a seat on the tiny plane to Ashley, who takes it because, remember, she's going to get married in two days, and the storm won't make her miss her wedding, but it might make her miss her wedding lead-in stuff. You know how us bitches love our wedding lead-in stuff. So Ben, Ashley, Grover, and Grover's dog, Tank, get into the tiny plane, and right before takeoff, Ben listens to a voicemail in which his wife is saying that she loves him. He doesn't call her back. Off they go. Grover is old-fashioned and slightly grumpy. There's some basic old-school chit-chat. You get the vibe that Ben and Grover are conservative men who value chivalry and old-fashioned ideas. We get little from Ashley. Also, and file this away, Grover doesn't file a flight plan, because what he's doing is flying them both in this storm is technically illegal. Ha ha ha! No biggie! What? What the darn government doesn't know won't hurt us, right? Am I right? Am I right? Then Grover has a heart attack and they crash. At this point, Ben morphs for the rest of the way into Mighty Ben, Savior of the World, epic perfect specimen of a man, a true manly man, a Marty Sue, if you will. We'll explain that later. Grover is dead. The dog is fine. The Mighty Ben has a few broken ribs that will not slow him down at all, and Ashley has a broken leg. The Mighty Ben swings into action. He makes shelter for them, raids his backpacking kit, because of course he's also a mountain-climbing backpacker, and so he's completely well-supplied for this type of adventure, including down sleeping bags and gas-powered mini-stove and coffee, etc. Anyways, he sets Ashley's broken leg, sews up her lacerations, he even makes booties for the dog. 
He also keeps sneaking away to record messages to his wife Rachel on his dictaphone thing. Of course, these aren't just progress reports on his, or his feats of awesomeness, but also, for some reason, a retelling of their entire love story from when they met in high school, got married after college, decided to have kids, blah 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 blah. The Mighty Ben protects the injured Ashley from medical things by taking care of her leg. Starvation by hunting, because of course Grover has a bow and arrow set in the plane and Ben knows how to use them. He protects her from the cold by making fire, once with two sticks. Then he protects her from a mountain lion. You get the drift. He has to hold a bottle under her to pee in and they start to bond, which is mostly him being muddy and her being the perfect patient and oh so perfect with her humor and her wittiness. Her jokes are the exact same kind of Ben's jokes, so of course he finds them funny. And um, she's just so strong. She's just so fit. She's just so amazing. She's just so strong. She's just so fit. She's just so amazing. The mighty Ben is quite taken with how awesome Ashley is. He also buries Grover. He talks to the body for a while. It's long. Eventually, he decides that they can't stay at the crash site. Remember, with no flight plan, no one will know that they are there, and no one will be looking for them anyway. So he builds a sled-like thing from plane parts and starts to drag her off in hopes that if they go down the mountain, they will eventually find other humans. Remember that whole wife interjection parts? Yeah, they really pick up. The wife, Rachel, was also pretty awesome. She was the light, the sun, the moon. She could literally do no wrong. She saved Ben by loving him, high school sweethearts and all of that. They went to the same college because he got her in because of the running. See, she was also a runner in high school. I mean, not as good as Ben, of course, but he helped her become a better runner. And she was so perfect in all and all in all the ways. On the mountain, Ben tells Ashley that they are separated and he has two kids. He doesn't want to talk about what causes separation and Ashley is the perfect companion, asking the right questions, but knowing to back off when he seems uncomfortable. She is, after all, really, really awesome. She talks about her fiancé sometimes, but always as a foil to the mighty Ben. Poor Vince is nice enough, but he can't hold a candle to the mighty Ben. She's so glad it's the mighty Ben that she's stuck with, since poor Vince would have no idea what to do. Also, she is settling a bit in this marriage to poor Vince, but, you know, men, like the mighty Ben, are all taken. Poor resigned Ashley. She's quite impressed that he tells her that his wife was right about whatever it was that they had argued about. See, he really is the perfect man. So down the mountain they go. But a storm comes in, so back to the shelter they go. And then they try again. He walks and walks and walks and pulls and pulls and pulls, and she asks questions that he doesn't want to answer. He continues to be the mighty Ben, making fire and all that. She tries to get him to leave her several times, but he won't. They chat about marriage. He admits to using Tylenol PM on the nights when his wife won't sleep with him. It's gross. I think it's supposed to read a sweet, but we'll put a pin in that. Anyway, they find random places to camp, and he's making good use of the compass that he has when he thinks that he sees something man-made, and that gives him a point to attempt for. Eventually, they make it across a big bad valley after he falls and she gets re-injured and it's all very dramatic and worrisome, but they make it and find a Boy Scout camp set up in a place with a big A-frame building. Hooray! Firewood and shelter and a can of soup and the ability to take baths in the sink and even a mattress. They rest. And Ashley does a puzzle and the dog kills rabbits and it's all very tranquil and nice. The Mighty Ben finds maps so now they know where they are and they can kind of make a plan for leaving. Also, they have the don't you find me sexy conversation, and he is the purest of all pure gentlemen, saying he only thinks about her as a patient because he's her doctor, and he wants to be able to look her fiancé in the eye later, blah, blah, blah. The gentle reader, we have seen him sniffing her hair. We know he's feeling guilty about something. So, in the parallel story, we have progressed through Ben and Rachel's annoyingly adorable courtship, and how she's the perfect wife, and how happy they were when she found out they were pregnant. Twins! Hooray! But then there's a partial placenta abruption, and she has to be on bed rest. Clouds are gathering over this storyline. 
After a month of bed rest, the placenta is majorly abrupted. The doctors say that they need to take the babies, aka abortion, to save the mother's life. But Rachel says no, absolutely not. Won't even entertain the notion. And they argued. In his dictaphone, he apologizes to her, tells her that what she was right in that fight, tells her he's sorry for yelling. Back on the mountain, he goes out to hunt, tries for moose calf, and things go wrong. Wolves come. There's a huge animal fight. The bow is trashed. So no more hunting. This helps them make the choice to leave the A-frame and head toward civilization. He makes her a new sled contraption. Off they go, camping in the wilderness, rationing their food, dragging her, and being an optimist. They see a light and smoke in the distance, a camp at a resting station. They're getting close to safety. So there they are, on the road. They can just keep going in this long, loopy road, or they can, you know, off-road it through dangerous terrain and cut miles off the journey. Ten miles of safety versus half mile of danger. I guess they forgot about the fucking plane crash because they opt for the half mile of danger, and of course they fall and flip and crash, and the mighty Ben is fucked up finally. Ashley's leg is rebroken, she doesn't have long. Now he has to leave her, and he runs for the house and the fire, and he imagines Rachel running with him, helping him get there. Get there he does. And he finds camper guys with snowmobiles and phones and everything, and Ashley gets rescued. Hooray! In the hospital, he insists on being present for her leg surgery, and he's pretty much unscathed, and he's released quickly, while she will have a longer recovery. He meets Vince. He pays a lady $100 to give Ashley a pedicure. He sends her up some food, because apparently she can't order food herself. And, okay. And then he talk, takes the dog, who's also survived, to Grover's widow. A widow is so grateful to the mighty Ben for bringing her a few of Grover's things, that despite that it's Ben's fucking fault that all this happened, she forgives him. And then Ben flies home. He gets flowers for Rachel and goes to the house he's built for her on the beach, just down the beach from the condo that he already owned. But whatever. He plays his dictaphone tapes for her and sleeps with her for the last time. Oh yeah, there's a twist coming. But wait, before we get that all spelled out, Ben goes to Ashley's wedding and Stalker Boy just prowls around outside the reception like a creeper and then leaves his gift, which is a recording of himself saying that he loves her and woe is me because I can't have either of the women that I love. And then he skulks away. But wait, Ashley shows up at his beach and is like, oh yeah, you're so perfect. And I totally left Vince after I got your message, and I need to meet Rachel. And of course, he takes her into the house, but it's not a house. It's a motherfucking crypt, and Rachel is dead, y'all, because her placenta abrupted just like the doctor said it would, and the last voicemail was her last voicemail, and he just listens to it randomly to punish himself, and the twins weren't savable, and so there are all three graves in this crypt, and Ashley is sad, but glad that he is single and is like, yep, we're together now, and let's go running. Then he watches her run and is like, yeah, she's a pretty good runner, but I can make her better. And off they run into the motherfucking sunset. The end. Accurate. <laughs> Accurate. Okay. Um, so to the person who left us an iTunes thing and said, I feel like sometimes they just read the Wikipedia synopsis. I wrote that synopsis. But you know what I didn't write? I didn't write the movie synopsis. I just augmented it a little bit. So here you go. Here's the movie plot. After their flight is canceled due to stormy weather, neurosurgeon Dr. Ben Bass and phot uh, photojournalist Alex Martin hire private pilot Walter to get them to Denver for connecting flights to Alex's wedding in New York and Ben's emergency surgery appointment in Baltimore. This is Alex's idea, by the way. She is capable. Kind of pushing. Ben's a bit of a ponce. During the flight, pilot Walter, who has not filed the flight plan, suffers a fatal stroke and the plane crashes into a mountaintop. Ben, Alex, and Walter's dog survive the crash, but Alex has injured her leg. Ben straps her knee up and buries the pilot whilst she is unconscious. Once conscious, Alex thinks Ben has a better chance of finding help if he leaves her behind, but Ben refuses. Stranded for days with dwindling supplies, Alex grows skeptical that they will be rescued anyway. 
Ben wants to wait for help by the plane's wreckage. Ben agrees to climb a ridge to see if there's any sign of a road. He sees nothing but mountains and barely survives falling down the side. Alex goes through Ben's things and listens to a message from his wife saying, I'm glad to have had this time with you. Alex is found by a cougar who attacks the dog. She sets off a flare and injures the big cat who runs away. Later, Ben comes back, tends to the dog's wounds, and also finds the dead cougar. They are able to cook and eat the cougar, giving them, Ben thinks, ten days worth of food. The two argue about waiting for rescue or descending the mountain to find a phone signal. Alex starts a lone descent because she is tired of waiting for Ben's ass, and Ben catches up. Having located the tail end of the plane, he finds that the beacon has been completely smashed. The two hike down the tree line and spend the night in the cave. Using her telephoto lens, Alex thinks she sees something man-made. They continue to hike and bond. At one point, they stop for a break, and Ben goes off to find the dog who has found a cabin. As Ben is looking at the cabin, Alex falls into freezing water. Ben rushes back and pulls her out. Alex remains unconscious and severely dehydrated. Ben saves her life by fashioning an IV. They stay there for several days in this cabin while Alex recuperates. She listens to his recorder and tries to get him to talk about his wife. He says his wife left him, and he isn't thrilled that she listened, but then they bond some more, and eventually they have sex. Big, steamy, cheater sex. Post-coital, Alex takes his photo, and Ben reveals that his wife died two years prior from a brain tumor. Later again, she asks Ben to leave her behind so he can find help. Ben initially agrees, but soon returns, and they press forward together. The dog alerts them to a nearby lumberyard. On their way towards it, Ben's leg gets caught in a bear trap. Alex cannot free him, so she is forced to leave him and limp towards the lumberyard until eventually she collapses in front of an approaching truck. They are rescued. Ben awakens in a hospital and goes to Alex's room, where he finds her with Mark, her fiancé. After a brief discussion, Ben leaves heartbroken, because you see, he's fallen in love. Ben and Alex go their separate ways after the hospital, with Ben keeping the dog. They both have trouble transitioning into the real world. Alex feels disconnected and realizes that she no longer loves her fiancé. Ben isn't a surgeon anymore due to the finger trauma, but he's working with patients and taking care of the dog, and, you know, he's generally sad. Alex tries calling Ben, but he ignores her calls until she sends him pictures of them and of the mountain, writing that only he can understand. This encourages Ben to call her. They meet at a restaurant where it is revealed that Alex is now a part-time teacher and Ben is a consultant of trauma clinics. Ben says he did not call Alex because he thought she would be married. Alex says she could not go through with it because she fell in love with Ben, but it was fleeting. Not real. It was because of the situation. After leaving the restaurant, Ben tells Alex that he's pretty sure that they survived because they did fall in love. Alex dismisses the feelings and reminds Ben of something he said on the mountain. The heart is just a muscle. She tells him that she doesn't know how they could be together in the real world. They hug goodbye and begin to depart in opposite directions. The end. No, just kidding. While walking away, both characters become distraught and finally turn around and begin running back to each other in a split second before they two embrace... The screen cuts to black and the credits roll. That's the real ending. But it shouldn't have been. They should have just ended with them walking away. Otherwise, this movie would have been great. It would have been fine. But no, we have to ruin it with the last five seconds because as we all know by now, Kalia hates romance. Kalia hates love. <laughs> so we all know how I came to this book <laughs> and movie. And did you, had you not heard anything about either one before I was like, let's do this book and movie? I had no idea. Okay. Well, I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> you know why? Because, because, and I'm sorry, spoilers for the end here. You know, when people are like, the book is always better than the movie. This is now, this and, um, oh God, uh, a simple favor are my examples of, no, no, sometimes the movie is way, way better than the book. Now, this wasn't the best movie in the world, but it was fine for what it was until the last 10 seconds. But like, Seriously, it is so much better than the book because the book is awful. It's it's 
bad, Jennifer. It's badly written. Michaelia, they're such well-drawn characters. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> and don't you really love that message about servant leadership? You know, the man is the leader. And in being a leader, he's the servant because he has to take care of the woman. That's the natural order. Oh, it's okay. I know you sent me a text. You're like, is this a Christian book? And I was like, ah, uh, because, okay, here's the thing, gentle listeners. I think you can be a, a religious person and write a book that doesn't necessarily talk about your religion, right? Like that's a thing that can happen. Authors have that capability, right? You don't always know somebody's personal beliefs in their fiction. But then sometimes you have people who are like, my name is Janet Oak, and I'm going to write historical fiction where everybody finds Jesus by the end of the book or or prays a lot. And it's very, very Christian and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, well, this is what I'm reading. I'm reading it's literally Christian literature, Christian historical fiction. So this book, though, again, me knowing nothing about the author, I was reading it and I was like, okay, so there's definitely like these traditional family things. And there's definitely like this old school conservatism, chivalry, whatever. But then there's also just like a lot of bad writing. And so I wasn't really sure is this like bad writing? Or is this that? And then he's written a lot of other books. And like, but apparently, yes, um, Charles Martin is a Christian author who tends to write Christian authory books and like most recently wrote a book all about like a novelization of, of like the New Testament or something. So for sure. But I wouldn't say that this is like, it's not a Christian book. Like nobody finds Jesus in this book. Nobody like prays to God. God never shows up to rescue people. Does, does that make sense? So I, I'm, I'm want to be very clear here. Like the reasons I didn't like this book weren't because the author was Christian and it wasn't because the people in the books may or may not have been Christian. We definitely know that R dead wife Rachel was Christian because he says stuff like you, you believe in things that can't be proven, blah, 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 blah. But, and then like the, the pro-life aspect of, of refusing the abortion is also but again, like not everybody who refuses an abortion is a Christian, right? So like, I really want to be very careful not to paint with like an over generous and cruel brush. Does that make sense? There are books that tell you a little bit about the world and give you insight. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird is a great example of that, where it tells you a little bit about how the world works and how people are. And then there are books that tell you about the author. And this is one of those that tells you about the author and his definitions of what consists of good men, good women, their roles. And that is the proselytization. Okay, I will give you that this is definitely his views. And I would say that while those views are shared with a lot of fundamental right-wing Christian groups, it's not the views of all Christian people. So does that make sense? I don't, no, we're I don't not painting Christians with the, you know one big brush. We're talking right. about a very specific author's view of Christianity and the roles that men and women are supposed to have under his view of Christianity. Right. And and in this case, it's like his view of, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a little unfortunate that there's no other characters because there's, there's basically Dr. Ben, the mighty Ben, and then there's Ashley and Rachel and that's, and then Grover, I guess, kind of for a little bit. And Grover was also like married to the same woman for you know all these years. And marriage is beautiful, and wonderful, which is great. You can believe marriage is beautiful, and wonderful. You don't have to be Christian to do that for sure. But you know this very conservative, like old boys club. But the problem is that all the other characters, we never learn anything about them because they're just there to tell us more about Ben. This book is about Ben, and 
and they're not even real characters. They're just foils for Ben or 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 like, you know, props for him to lug around a mountain or props for him to obsess about or to think about or to or to to talk at. Like literally, Ashley would ask him a question like, is that a dictaphone? And he'd be like, I was going through medical school and my blah, 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 blah. And like three paragraphs later, I mean, yes, he could have just said, yes, it's a dictaphone. Or he could have said, yeah, it's a dictaphone my wife gave me. Like, I mean, come on. It was just... The man needed a live journal, and instead he wrote a book, I feel like, in some ways, like this Dr. Ben person. And I just, blah, blah, blah. So shall we talk about the history of the Mary Sue? Yes, and how I called him a Marty Sue. Um, I think it's also a Martin Sue. and the Gary of- Sue, if you want to keep the rhyme. All right, so a little history lesson. The name Mary Sue comes from a Star Trek fanfic, The Trekkie's Tale, that came out in 1974. The author of this was making fun of a lot of female self-inserts that were making the ways into fan fiction at the time. So this cadet was brilliant, was the best. Everybody loved her. She was charming. She made the world happen. Since then, Mary Sue, the character, has become synonymous with author inserts and plain lazy writing. There isn't a single character trait that goes under Mary Sue. It tends to be just that perfect character or the character that the whole story revolves around. There are no characters in this book that really have their own life. They're all there for Ben. They're all there because Ben is a son and nobody else exists except to make him better. Yes. And he's freaking perfect at everything. Like, absolutely, he can do no wrong. Even when he messes up, it's because he was doing the right thing. Even though I would argue that he was not doing the right thing. Um... So yeah, there's a lot of definitions of what constitutes, you know, a real man, real men from Alpha Centauri or real men from Alpha Centauri. <laughs> so he's into hunting. He knows about bows. There's a lot of mansplaining about how the compass works. He was an Eagle Scout, you know, all these very wholesome things. He was faithful to his wife. He only had one love. That was his wife. His marriage, that was the only relationship they had. Yeah, and even though, I mean, you know, we know and he knows that his wife is dead, the fact that he had feelings for somebody else, like made him literally vomit from his toes, it says. Because how, you know, how could he possibly feel anything for somebody else, even though his wife has been dead for four years? Um, Even this, this is going into this idea of subservience, because his libido is in check. He keeps the girl in check who kind of wants to do a little sexual thing. So she has to be subservient to what he wants. She's waiting for his signals. He's withholding them. He keeps the control, and it's signaling his virtue and self-control. Definitely. Even though he's the fucking, he's feeling her up when he's, like, taking off, when she's unconscious and he's, like, examining. He's like, I ran my hand up her thigh. Fit. Lean. Blah, blah, blah. Like, it is, it is not a medical, it's, it's sexual. Like, he's totally, ugh. And even when he notices her in the airport. He's always comparing her to movie stars. This is how she is introduced in the book. Her walk caught my attention. I'm sorry. Right there. Problem, but we're fine. Okay. Her walk caught my attention. Long, slender legs, purposeful gait, yet graceful and rhythmic, comfortable and confident in her own skin. She was maybe five foot nine or ten, dark-haired and attractive, but not too concerned about it, because he can totally fucking tell. Maybe thirty. Her hair was short. Think Winona Ryder in Girl Interrupted or Julie Ormond in Harrison Ford's remake of Sabrina. Not a lot of fuss, yet you could find the same style up and down Manhattan with girls who'd paid a lot of money to look like that. 
Alia, she had eyes like optical orbs and breasts like mammary glands, and her dress was the color of a foreskin. Throbbing, nope, nope, we're, we're not gay. But her dress was a, the color of a vibrant vagina. Yes. There we go. Yep. Yes. Anyways, so she sets down her bags, blah, 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 and then eyeing the terminal, sat on the floor and stretched, based on the fact that not only her head, but also her chest and stomach could touch her thighs and the floor between her legs. I surmise that she'd done this before. Her legs were muscular, like an aerobics instructor's. Shut up, man. Like, oh, ugh. so gross. Like, he's just, he's not as awesome. He's as visually he feeling her up. Yeah, for sure. And she's literally just sitting in a, in a, in a t- airport. I just, I hate it. I hate, I hate it. And then like, when he, like his first description of Rachel also, like she ran by him and it, like he saw the green of her eye. I mean, it's just, ugh. somebody I saw online compared him to Nicholas Sparks and I <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's 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 definitely uh, similarities here. Anyways, so grumble grumble, do not like the way that Ben is portrayed as Ben, do not like the way that Ben is portrayed with other women. Like I just found all of it really bad. Like Ashley is literally just there to be dragged around and talk to him and have him fall in love with her even though like she's basically just a mere reflection of him. <sighs> And of course, like, yeah. he has all this stuff in his backpack because he's been mountain climbing. So, like, not only is he an eagle scout and knows how to hunt with a bow and, like, knows how to make fire with a stick, but, like, he's got coffee and, like, stuff. Like, all, like the, the, the sleeping bags. Like, all the stuff. So, it's not even... I mean, yes, it was extreme and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, okay, this isn't a real story, okay? This is choices. The author made choices. The author decided, I'm going to tell a wilderness survival story, but I'm going to give my person who has to survive all the benefits I can possibly, like, find a legitimate reason for him to have so that it's not too bad for him. And if, you know what it feels like? It feels like freaking Christian privilege, white man Christian privilege in our society right now. It's like, yeah, you're going to go through something, but you're going to go through it with a white skin being male being upper middle class or lower upper class or whatever and having like a chance to go to college and having money and having prestige and having a support system. But yeah, of course you're going to struggle. Like, and I'm not saying that it wasn't cold out there and that it wasn't nice that he was able to, you know, transport her around and whatever, but he doesn't ever acknowledge the fact that he was so freaking privileged to have all of that stuff with him that made it, that made the journey so much easier than it could have otherwise been. Well, there's also the undercurrent of God provides. So when they needed a cave, there's a cave. When they needed a Boy Scout shelter, there's a Boy Scout shelter. So there's always that God provides what you need. You know, it was God's will that his wife was taken. And wow. that is a whole bunch of malarkey. Well, this is a, a lot of holdover from the Victorian era. During the Victorian era, there were basically two kinds of women that were considered ideal. You had the mother who could take care of the house, cook excellent meals, you know, take care of the children, everything's clean, everything's perfect. And that's one kind of the perfect mother. The next perfect mother, the even perfecter mother, is the dead one who, by virtue of being dead, is more angelic, or the constantly sick mother. And it's this weird dichotomy between being really healthy and taking care of the house and being unable but spiritually fulfilling. And so that's what you've got going on here. And this book has both. Yeah, it is basically doing the Victorian thing. So, okay, can we talk about the dead wife? I feel like in the hands of a better writer, we might have, it might have been more of a twist. 
But I don't know. At what point did you know she was dead? I knew she was dead pretty pretty early. Yeah, it was. It, it's just such a trope. And so it's not to come off. Oh, we're so much smarter. We know the tropes. It's just kind well, of well, kind of. It, it's not just a trope, but like the guy has a voicemail, and she's like. I love you, and I'm sorry we fought, blah, blah, blah. I don't like it when you leave, yada, yada. And he's about to get on a plane, and he doesn't call her back. But, like, his whole personality is that he is the perfect husband and the perfect man. So you're like, that doesn't work. Why would you not call the wife back, right? Like, so why wouldn't you call the wife back? Like, that's a thing. What bothered me, okay, I don't mind twists. In fact, I actually like twists. And if they can surprise me, like, I think that's cool. What I don't like is when an author is purposefully um, disingenuous. I I was going to say disingenuous. I missed what you said. What'd you say? Manipulative. Okay, sure. When they freaking lie. Like, she says, like, are you married? Yes. Okay, we're separated. Do you have kids? Yes. How old are they? They are four. Um, no, dude. (laughs) I'm sorry. No. You totally led her on to think that you had a, a wife, that you were separate, and that you had been involved with children for four years. And that is... That is not accurate at all. And I just, okay. And then like, they must miss you. And he's like, I miss them. And I'm like, you miss the potential of what those kids may or may not have turned out to be. But they were never born. They weren't even viable. Like, and I don't want to get into an abortion. And when does true life really start here? Because that's very political. But like, it's a rabbit hole. It, it, it was too really much. It was very, very, very manipulative to, to make us think that maybe like that these kids were actually alive out there somewhere and that he's being a dick and not calling or not like worrying about them. It's very strange. And then when at the end where he goes to where Rachel is, I played them my, my things for her and then I got up to go and it literally says, Rachel beckoned me and then I came over and my tears fell on her face and then I laid down and slept with my wife for the last time. Okay. I understand that a thing can beckon, but when you say something beckons you, like a person, it makes it sound like there's a hand motion involved. You know what I mean? Like, and at that point, it's so late in the book. Like, why are we still holding on to this? Why do we want to make this a thing where, you know, Ashley's going to be surprised when she, I mean, it just, there's no point to it. Grr. (laughs) so let's talk about the movie where ben is not perfect he's a little bit more self-centered they do fight one of the changes i i loved is that kate winslet takes on the mountain lion okay one of the changes i really hated was that kate winslet gets offended and goes off on a huff okay no i love it i freaking love kate winslet in this movie okay i love her to begin with but like this role okay first of all it's her idea to take the plane the charter plane okay because she's kind of brassy like the very first thing that happens in the entire movie is kate winslet cutting in line and then being like i'm sorry i know i just cut in line but blah 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 and i was like "Ooh, girl i'm ready to hate you but then, like, it, it works because, like, it's okay to have characters who do crappy things, right? Who are selfish sometimes. Like, that's fine. You can you can live with that. So, like, okay, so she's brassy. She's tacky. She's kind of self-centered in her own way, right? Okay. Um, she's on the phone with the fiancé and she's like, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. You know, whatever. And I was like, okay, I've been there. Like, I've been there. Like, that is, you know, you want to be... I'm sorry? It's human. It's very human, right? We have so the then, same. We have a human that we can relate to. 
Right, and he's kind of pouncy. He's like, I have to go. It's an emergency surgery. Blah, 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 blah. And like later on, we find out that it's a neurosurgery and it's like actually, you know, so like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. And her wedding was literally the next day. She was like, as soon as I land, I'll get there. You know, uh, even if I have to run down the aisle. So like the movie made some smart choices. They made him not an orthopedic surgeon. They made him a neurosurgeon. They made him not the one who came up with this idea. It was her idea. And, and the... The, the tension of getting there quickly was was bigger because both of them had like very important things that were happening like that same day not I'm getting married in two days I have a scheduled leg surgery I mean leg surgeries are important don't get me wrong but it's different than a brain tumor surgery right anyways go on with your other ways that you loved Kate Winslet because I have a bunch <laughs> um I was just a little bit annoyed when it was after a fight and she's like well, I'm just going to go out on my own because that is the worst thing that you're supposed to do. You never leave the disaster site. That is A1, you're probably going to die. Sure. Um, except that he wasn't going to leave. He was not going to leave the disaster site. And so she knew that the only way to get him to move would be to start moving. And at that point, she doesn't need him. To, I mean, oh, she needs him, but she didn't like, she's like, if you won't come with me, I'm just going to go. This was not a, we will do it together. And if we both die, we both die. But like, blah, blah, blah. No, man. She was like, no, I have a plan. It might be stupid, but it's better than sitting here and waiting to die. And personally, I would rather die on my feet trying than die of slow starvation, looking at somebody and wondering if, if I had bothered to try you know, and she was right. The thing had gotten destroyed and then he came with her and stuff. Okay, she's right in the movie, but in real life, people stay at the disaster site. Well, even in the book, they shouldn't have stayed at the disaster site. Like, that was... Okay, that but was in real point. life, stay at the disaster site. <laughs> what I really liked was that there was this... There was a lot more tension. Well, yes, and there was parallels about the leaving. So she left and then he followed, and then later on she was like, look, I'm in this cabin. I'm okay. Like, you should go. And he's like, fine. So he leaves and he's like, no, man, we're going to do it together. So he comes back to her. And then, like, then he gets caught by the bear trap. And so then she has to leave him to bring help. And then at the very end, they are leaving each other. And then, of course, like, like freaking magnets, they right back together, which I've already made my opinion on that clear. But I, I thought it was well done. Like, the the There's a lot more give and take and back and forth. There isn't that idea that you have to be subservient. Well, and also, like, she she is, like, a little bit more foolhardy, obviously. Like, she's obviously the heart and he's obviously the brain and blah, blah, blah. Because he's a neurosurgeon. I don't know if you caught that, but he's all logical with his neurosurgery. And she's a photojournalist, like, an artistic. Symbolism? Crazy But you talk. know what? It works. She wasn't a manic pixie dream girl. Like, she was, like, just a person who was very impulsive. And so I appreciated that. But then they get to a point where they can't keep going because it's super dangerous. And she's like, no, no, maybe we can. Maybe we can. And he's like, no, that is dangerous. We will die. We have to go back. And again, he walked away from her. And she was finally, she had to like be like, fine, you're right. And turn around and follow him. So I liked that in both of their cases, both of them have this moment of pulling the other towards what was safe, sometimes by making them go a direction that they wouldn't have gone on their own. And I just... I thought it worked much better in the movie. I just, she was an actual character. <laughs> he was an actual character. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't a backpacker. They didn't have all the supplies. You know, it was, it was so much better. So much better. And the dog was There's cute. No archery. There was no archery. <laughs> There's a tiny little callback that I loved where when they first have the crush, he does think about eating the dog, but he can't because it's a dog. And in the movie, as Kate Winslet's walking away with the dog, 
you know, he'd probably eat you. Yes, she says. <laughs> and the dog was adorable. And the dog lives. <laughs> also very important. <laughs> There's a cougar. Yes, cougar. the dog must live. I'm glad that she's the one who fought the cougar with the flare gun. That was pretty cool. Good for her. And that's how they were able to eat, so. Yeah, the movie, you have to let logic and reason go. You know, when she leaves and, okay, we're going to go on the grand adventure with her fractured leg and his broken ribs. That's when you just go, you're, you're, you're in for the ride. You're either in or you're not. And right. you can enjoy it and laugh at it and think it's silly at the same time. It's, from a thematic standpoint, better than the book. Oh, for sure. Well, and then also, like, she had a, a badly injured leg, but it, I mean, in the book, he was like, she cannot. Well, she was on a sled. Yeah, well, the whole time. She cannot move it. She can't put any weight. It blah, 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 blah. We have to ice it all the time. We've got to do this, got to do that. And this, like, he made her a splint, and then, like, she couldn't go very fast. And she was definitely in pain, but she was limping around. She only had to be on a sled at the very, very, very end. Most of it, she was tromping around with a little pole, you know, which she was, she was more mobile in all the ways, you know, she, that, and that gave her more to do, which was excellent. Yeah. So this gets, um, to circle back a little bit, this is a nice showing of how people can be equals. It isn't about serving somebody. It isn't about them being submissive. It isn't this weird thing where you have to submit and be submissive and you're service leader. That's its own little twisted weird thing. You know, take people as they are. Take them as an equal. And it's a much better story. And the, the tagline for the movie posters and stuff is like, what if your life depended on a stranger? And one of the reviews I read said, well, it really depends on the stranger. Because Ben Payne <laughs> in, the, in the book would keep you alive but would drive you crazy. And um, Idris Alba, maybe you would die, but at least you'd have a better time. Can we can we acknowledge the steamy ass sex scene that happened? Because whew, baby, that was that was something. I mean, it really does depend on the on the stranger that you're that you're stuck with. Because I mean, I'm just gonna tell you all right now, if you get stuck on a mountain with me, we're dead um, for sure. And this book definitely confirms that outside is scary and dangerous and bad, and we should just never go there. So um, I'm gonna do a little quote from. The Roger Ebert Review, which is not done by Roger Ebert since he has passed away. Uh, I should have known when Ben early on portentously utters, a heart is nothing but a muscle, that this movie, just like the plane, was destined to crash. Not to spoil the ending, which is corny as a crate of Cracker Jacks, but it seems almost invariable that Alex's perfectly nice yet bland fiancé would be Dormant McBlorney. Dormant McBlorney? Is that like his name? Dormant Mulroney. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought it was like saying like, like dormant on arrival or dead on arrival. And I was like not understanding like the sounds your mouth was making. Okay, great. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so what do you think about having the sex scene in the movie? Well, obviously they didn't have it in the book because uh, well, that wouldn't be Christian. Well, that definitely wouldn't. That be... wouldn't be that flavor of Christian, I should say. Yeah. And I would say that it wouldn't make sense with Ben as a character in the, in the book at all. It just, no. In the movie... I was a little like, hey, girl, you're engaged. And there was less. Okay, so here's the thing. In the book, every time that Ashley talked about her fiance, it was always to say how sucky he was at things like, oh, he's a nice guy, but he would not know how to do this or that or the other thing. Not like you, Mighty Ben. But in the movie, she does. She's like she talks about her fiance. And her name is Alex for some reason. Alex talks about her fiance like he'll be so worried about me. He'll be so worried. I can't believe I'm missing my wedding. So there, there wasn't like this this setup. We didn't know anything about the fiance at all. We just knew that he existed. We know that 
we've been told that Ben is separated from his wife. Okay, so now we're going to have sex. On the one hand, I'm not, like, pro-cheating by any means. On the other hand, if you think you're going to die, like, I feel like that kind of gets you a whole pass, but that's personal, and that's, like, a conversation I've had with my partners. Like, you know, um... Is that, like, if you could get your secret celebrity crush to sleep with you? No, I don't I don't go for that. But, like, I, I just... I mean, like, every, every couple is going to have their own rules, right? And we don't know what Ashley... Or, sorry, Alex or whatever. We don't know Kate Winslet's rules with her, her boyfriend or her fiancé. And we do know that Ben is single, technically, right? So is it wrong? Is it right? Is it morally gray? I think it falls into that understandable category in terms of, like, death and adrenaline and blah, 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 blah. Fine. Then he tells her after, like, post-coital, because the best pillow talk ever is about your dead wife, right? I mean, that's always what gets my juices going. So then he's like, she didn't leave me. She died of a brain tumor, which, of course, is the hypocrisy. You know, like, oh, my God, because he's a brain surgeon. It's even worse, you know, and stuff. Although, to be honest, as I'm watching that scene, I'm just, like, so relieved that he didn't say she died because... The babies, blah, blah, blah. I was, like, just so happy that that was just all left completely out. Anyways, so he tells her, and it's like, okay, like, he has fallen for her, but she still has this fiancé, and she goes back, and she can't quite connect to the fiancé, and things are different, and blah, 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 blah. And you kind of get the sense that maybe she wasn't perfectly happy beforehand, and it kind of puts that early conversation when she was on the phone. She's like, I'll be there, I'll be there. Yeah, I'll figure it out. You know, it was... It wasn't like, I'm worried I'm not going to be there for me, but it was like, you know, stop harassing me. I, I will take care of this, you know, in a very different way. So I did, I did, it was fine, I guess is what I'm saying. It, it yeah, I, 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 it bothered me way more in the book because she's actually at her wedding. She's, she's getting married and he's stalker. He's like there and he leaves her a present, but she's literally getting married. Like he go and then at the end when she shows up, the author gives us like three pages of them talking and talking about how now Rachel's dead and like maybe they could be together before he offhandedly says, I took her let her naked left hand in mine and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, whoa, I mean, she, so she got divorced? Or annulled. Or annulled? Like, but that, that's even worse. So like come back and then go through with a wedding and then leave your brand new spouse because you get a recording from you know incel ben over there like i just gross gross and, and it is highlighted a little bit in the movie when they talk about the graduate mm -hmm. so what's unusual in this case where we say well the movie was better than the book is we tend to you and i kaylee and jennifer tend to like morally great characters we like complexity we want people who feel real we don't like those overly idealized types and usually the book has room to have a morally great character, and instead they put that in the movie. Yep, which is why I'm going to go back to what I said at the very beginning of this. The movie is vastly better than the book. Just out of the park better. And it was so pretty. Like, I'm sorry, I, I maybe this is just me and a failure of imagination, but like, an author's like, there was snow, there was lots of snow, it was really white, there was lots of white snow, there was so much snow, and I'm like... But then, like, you're watching it, and you're like, oh, my God, it's so pretty. of river ice. Oh, really? It's, there's only that color, and it's so intense, and it's beautiful, and it's deadly. That, yeah. that was, you know, it's one of those things that, as an author, you can really enjoy, you know, flexing your creative skills with that kind of description. Yeah. But it yeah. was snowy. It was snowy. It was a lot snow. of snow. <laughs> it was cold. And they slept a lot, and then it was more snow. And, my, and I was a, 
I was asleep before my head hit the pillow. I was asleep as my head hit the pillow. I was asleep right as my head hit the pillow. (laughs) At least there's like a pot of like yellow snow that they could have. No. Okay. It's just snow. More snow. So much snow. Also. Also. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I have done this particular rant before. And I'm sorry, I will never stop. The movie, they're not out there that all that long. It's like a, maybe a week, right? It, it definitely does not feel like it, they're out there for an entire month. Like the book is, it's over a month, right? Fine. Okay. Which again, books can do longer distance and longer time spans and yada. I get it. Fine, fine, whatever. Okay. She never has a period. Like we have to talk about her BMs. We do. We talk about bowel movement. We talk about peeing. We talk about all this intimacy, blah, 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 blah. But the woman never has a period. That never it's, even comes up. It's not that unusual um, if you have to go through starvation or extreme that you know, maybe stuff doesn't happen like it's supposed to. And that is valid. Even if you get extra, extra stressed. Like let's say, I don't know, a pandemic shows up and you have to have eye surgery in the middle of it. I get it. Like your period might be wacky, but like it warrants a mention because we get all this other body crap about her. You know what I mean? And he is like super in tune to her breathing and the swelling of her breasts. It's a lot of her body that's being invaded. Yes. And it's like, love her privacy. She's naked when she's unconscious, holding her while she's doing the most intimate acts. Yep. 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 And she's like, what if I have to poop? He's like, oh, you already did. What? Like, I mean, oh my God. But okay, seriously. So there yeah. is a thing with doctors and nurses where, you know, the gross out factor isn't there. You do have to look at somebody's urine to see how healthy it is. It's a little weird from a non-medical person to go, really? You have to, okay. But that's what they do. And so the the cross-out factor isn't there. But her intimacy is constantly violated. And I get that. I have a child. I've had to do stool samples and look at her pee and, like, measure it. She had a medical thing. And I've had to monitor. And it's a thing, right? And you just get over it it, to a certain extent. But to have her body and all her body stuff be constantly talked about, but then this huge aspect of it not to be talked about, it just, it, it... it's just a. It just was noticeable to me in the in the exclusion of it. I should say. Yeah, there's of course, a lot of movie. lack of consent, a lot of lack of choice, and it's like, well, you know, she has to pee, he needs to help her, but it shows the inequality in their relationship. Yeah, the unbalance for sure. In the movie, my only thought about that was, first of all, you know, she was able to take care of her own needs, and and so it's okay if she has that, she has that. But also, they had sex, and I was like. No one has a condom, right? Like, please, please, if this don't make this a Hallmark Lifetime movie where she shows up pregnant, you know, later, because holy crap, like, let's not go there. And I'm very glad that it did not go there. So yeah, we don't need flashbacks to the first wife on that one either. No. And you know, we don't need people to get punished for sex either. That I was very relieved. Nobody got punished for their sex. They they had their sex and they needed it and they had it. And I, I love the turn of him falling for her first because it's very tropish for women to fall first and women to have more, you know, emotional wraps ups into sex and all of that kind of stuff, which isn't actually accurate, but it tends to be how it's portrayed. And so I was relieved to see that. He was like, though, I love you. And she was like, no, you don't. It was just the situation, you know, which legit um, until the very end. So, yeah, I, I, my friends and I were recently watching Lost in Translation and it's, better when they left it's it's the stuff that isn't said it's it's a person who changed your life and then you move on with that change yep because kaylee hates romance that's right (laughs) i i always want to like see what happens next because if you're making a, a point that you can find true love 
or find love through trauma, what happens 10 years later? Like, okay, so like, you know, this person kind of intimately because you've been going through this thing with them. But that's very different than like living in the real world with them. And I love that she points that out. You know, that's the real world. Okay, legit. I remember when I was single and I would be dating people, I'd be like, okay, I have to see how they handle things like a rude waiter or lost luggage or bad traffic or when the nights they don't get enough sleep. I need to know when they get mad, like really mad at me, like we're having an actual argument. Are they going to hit me? Like these are important things that you just don't know until you've lived through them. And so if you just have like, if you meet someone on vacation, and it's the vacation version of that person, that's not the real version of the person. And I feel like it's the same here. Like if you meet somebody going through a traumatic experience, if we meet because there's a hurricane, and we meet in the shelter, like we're both going through something really traumatic, that's not our real selves. Like, it's just not. So yeah, anyways, also Kalia hates love. So <laughs> so I like both actors, actor, actress in the film. I just thought they didn't have much chemistry. You know, it, it felt weird and awkward when they were pushing the relationship. Oh, I, that didn't phase me. I bought it. I mean, anybody who doesn't want to make out with either of those people is not a person that I understand um, on a visceral level. So um, yes. I'll agree with you. It's just it's the, the, the two didn't have a whole lot of chemistry on screen. It was just a lot of bickering of why are you even kissing? Because it's obvious you don't, you could barely tolerate each other. Uh, so that's just a personal criticism of how I felt about the movie. But I do like both of the actors. I just don't think they had on-screen chemistry. Uh, there was nothing about their on-screen chemistry that bugged me. It was fine. I didn't quibble there. Yes, the third character of the scenery was great. And the dog was also great. Just have to say. The dog must live in a plane crash. With no seatbelt or anything to be straight up. Nope. Yeah. Not even scratch. We and it wasn't even like being held down. The dot like in the shot. Which okay, the cinematography was was really cool. Like that like the the scenery it was, was a nice tight shot. The in the plane like the camera moves around a whole bunch as they're like you know before they crash and then as they're crashing. I thought that the it was very well shot. I will say the movie was very well shot. I thought it was well acted. The writing was so much better than the book like they definitely did a really good adaptation of keeping two people get on a plane and it crashes and they have to survive in the snow the end like yes that's all there um but they made it so much better this was a i mean i don't know if i'll ever watch it again because i've kind of seen it now but i'm not as in love with the movie as you are i thought it was okay you know it was a way to spend an afternoon but i don't think i'll ever watch it again i will never read this book again very true This uh, podcast brought to you by medical disasters, both in person, in real life, in movies and books. That sums it up. Um, The lesson here is don't charter a plane. Just be patient. And the groom will wait for you. It's okay. The groom will, yeah, if he's worth anything, he will be okay. Yeah, And also sometimes it's okay to leave the site of the disaster. No, it's not. It is not. Don't leave the disaster. Okay, it's it's cute for the movie, and it's cute for the book, and it makes nice drama. Don't leave the disaster. We want you to live so you can keep paying us <laughs> to do this wonderful podcast. Exactly. <laughs>